Uh, well, good morning. My name is John. Uh, I have the joy and privilege of, of uh, being in leadership here, along with Gareth and uh, some other folks. And so we're very grateful that you're with us this morning. And especially if you're someone who's new, we'd love to say hi to you and hear a bit about your story and, and how you ended up here. Before we hop into uh, the teaching for this morning, I wanted to point out in the back, on the back table over there, what we have going on is coffee and tea. Who's enjoyed this coffee and tea so far? Yes? Okay. Well, yes. Big thank you for, uh, we, we don't get a woo for Mother's Day, but for coffee, <laughs> clapping and wooing. Um, we've got a few people. Joel is, is kind of heading up with Bastion and Katrina, the coffee. And if you like having coffee, we need a few more people to serve, help serve coffee in the morning. So you come here early, you basically turn it on, and uh, then you get a chance to, to chat with other people who are here. So if you're, if you're someone who can show up early and you'd like to join the coffee team, you can chat with uh, Joel in the back. Well, we are... Uh, finishing up a series in the Gospel of Luke. At the beginning of, of every year, we look at the life of Jesus, and we're looking at Jesus' life in Luke by the way that he announces his ministry and his life. And he comes in in Luke 4, his first public ministry, and he says that, that I am here, Jesus is here to um, preach good news to the poor, release for the captives, sight for the blind. And then he says it's the year of Jubilee. That's what he's bringing. That's how he announces his, his ministry and his movement. And what he's doing there is stealing language from Isaiah, a prophet from the Hebrew scriptures, to announce what he's doing into the world. And it's this amazing uh, ministry that, that was supposed to happen in Israel, and as far as we know, never did. Every 49th or 50th year, where the land would be restored to its original owners, all the slaves would be freed, all the debts would be released, and everybody would take a year of Sabbath. But it never ever happened as far as we know. And so Jesus says, but this is my ministry. This is what I'm bringing into the world. And so we followed him around for several weeks just watching how Jesus institutes and how he preaches this jubilee ministry, this uh, beautiful ministry that he does. And then on Easter, we saw the very, very sad news that Jesus dies. And it looks like this jubilee dream, the king who brings it, called the Messiah, the king is dead, and this jubilee dream is over. And so it's a super big letdown. And the disciples, the people who have been following Jesus for these past three years, watching him bring jubilee into the world, are, you can imagine they're just super let down and confused. Like, what's going to happen now? And so we're going to pick up that story in Luke 24, the last chapter of Luke. So they're hanging out, they're talking, and Jesus himself comes and stands in their midst, in the disciples' midst, and he says to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? I'll just pause here to say, if you ever read, about, read through Jesus' ministry, he often asks questions. In fact, he asks way more questions than he gives answers. But to me, these are some of my favorite questions that he asks, because it's just such a weird question. Like, why are you startled? Oh, because you were dead, and now you're not. It's kind of weird. Um, so Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now again, just a quick sidebar here. Luke, there's four different stories, uh, narratives about Jesus' life. Luke's, specifically, he announces himself, he says, when I'm telling this story, the, the thing that I bring is that I'm an investigator. I'm going to go check everything that's happened and try to bring you the facts as far as, as I know them. And so here he's trying to tell us with everything that he has, with all of his language and all of his research, that contrary to everything that the disciples expected and contrary to everything that we might expect, 
and everything that's happened in history that this Jesus is actually raised. That he came in bodily form and he ate with them and he let them touch him. And of course, there's loads of room for doubt just like the disciples are having. It's a weird thing that's happened. But Luke is trying to say that to us. That this is actually what happened. So Jesus told them, these are my words that I spoke to you when I was still with you. This is why he's saying, you shouldn't have been surprised because I spoke these words to you. In fact, they're the story of the Bible. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their mind to understand the scripture. And Jesus is here once again saying what we've said many times, that the scripture, the story of the Bible, can only really be understood through the lens of the risen Jesus. It's only when he comes and stands in our midst, as as Gareth prayed, that his presence would be here, that we can actually understand and see not only ourselves, but what God's word holds. So what is the message of the Bible centered on the person of the risen Jesus? He said to them, this is what is written, that the Messiah, which is this long-awaited king who would bring Jubilee in, the Messiah will suffer. This is the story of the Bible, that he will not bring Jubilee in by power or by coercion or by force or by voting the right person in, but the way that Jubilee will come, the way that he will take his throne is actually through suffering through the power of self-giving love. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. This is the amazing announcement. As the disciples thought, Jubilee is probably over, our king is dead, and now Jesus stands in their midst, and he says, no, Jubilee is, is continuing on. My ministry can continue on into this world of Jubilee. And then he says, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, this is very Christian-y language, and I don't know what pops up in your mind when you hear this last sentence. For me, one of the things that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, somebody standing at the corner of uh, Granville and Robson on a milk crate with a megaphone telling people that they're going to hell and that they should turn and repent. And so we need to just back out a little bit and remind ourselves of what the first hearers would be hearing when they heard this language. If you remember, this word forgiveness that Jesus uses here is a, is a jubilee word. It's the word, does anyone remember what the Greek word is? We've mentioned it four or five times. Aphasin. Aphasin or aphasis. I was just testing if people do remember anything that I talk about. I was pretty sure. My wife's like, you should not do that. That might be embarrassing. It's right. It's the word aphasin or aphasis. It's this jubilee word that God, Jesus uses when he says, I'm going to release the captives. I'm going to free them. And it's the same word that's used for forgiveness. This is the ministry of Jesus and what he's come to do, to let go, to release, to free, to forgive. And he says that there are sins, there are things that we do that, that we th- commit, the sins that we commit personally, let's put it that way. There's darkness that each of us throws out into the world, where we hurt ourselves, we hurt each other, and we hurt the world that we have. And we need freedom from those things. We need release, or the biblical word forgiveness. We need to ask forgiveness from others and from God. But when Jesus uses the word sin here, what he's talking about is a much, much bigger story of this dark power that has reigned and ruled over our world. And held us hostage. And he is saying, with the risen Jesus, not only is Jubilee back, but this power is broken over us. That through the self-giving love of Jesus, we are invited now to turn, which is what the word repentance means. To turn and walk with God to become new humans. Or as the First Nations Bible puts it, to turn and walk on the good road with Jesus. That is now available to us, to become people who look like Jesus. And the good news is not just for the Jewish people. It's starting in Jerusalem, that's what this passage says, but now it's going to be offered to the entire 
world. And so rather than being a message of hellfire and brimstone or of guilt and shame, this is a beautiful promise and a summary of what the Bible has been on about from the very beginning. This offer for us to become new humans in the person of Jesus. And this is where the disciples would probably be overjoyed. Just imagine yourself being there. You know, our king is risen. Jesus is alive, and no one can deny it. If anyone has any questions about if he's truly the Messiah, they could just come and meet him. They could just come and see him. They could touch him as we were able to do. And then they could have to acknowledge that he is who he says he is, the son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, the true king. And he's going to lead us around the world with this jubilee message. All the things that we've been seeing him doing throughout his life, we can now go do those in the rest of the world. Heal people free people, preach this good news to the poor, and this amazing ministry will touch all of the nations and change history. And that was probably what was on their minds a couple verses later, where it says, Jesus led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, and lifts his hands and blesses them. And so, if you're there, imagine yourself there. It's like, yeah, let's receive this blessing. It's going to be party time. Here we go. This is kicking everything off. For me, I think I played a lot of sports growing up. It's like your captain of your team is giving you the pep talk before you go out and take the field. It's like this great moment. But here's where it gets really weird. It says, while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up to heaven. Now, if I imagine myself present in this moment, which is kind of tough because we know if you're familiar with the story of God, you kind of know you're expecting that this would happen. But if we just imagine ourselves there at that moment, it would lead to, at least for me, absolute confusion. The whole plan was that Jesus would take over the world with us. We'd work together and we'd take over the world and and he'd lead us around in triumphal procession. We would go from strength to strength, from place to place, kicking tail and taking names in the name of Jesus. And we would go out there and God's kingdom would spread all over the world and he would come into power. And now he's out of here. We're losing the star of the show and I would be like, you know, and if there's no star of the show, I don't even know that there's a show. And so this is a huge downer. If Jesus isn't here anymore, then what do we do? Like, what do we do with ourselves? Should we go back to our jobs? And is the Jubilee dream over? This thing that we've been following and hoping for for our whole history as people, but... For us, we've been in on the last three years. Like, is it over? And what should we do? So what is, is Jesus' plan? What, what is he doing? And what happens now to Jubilee? Well, he answers that in, in two verses, in verse 48 and 49, and I want to take a look at those today. So what is, what is Jesus' plan? And the first word he uses is this word, you. What is God's plan for Jubilee? What is his plan for his kingdom to come in the world? It is the disciples. And it's me. And it's you. Now, to me, this is super surprising. Because if Jesus is God, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I think about these kinds of things. If Jesus is God, he's just been raised from the dead. So he can kind of, and he's eternal. We know this if you've attended Sunday school for more than two weeks. He could just hang out. He didn't have to leave if he wanted to. Why not just stick around? That seems like such a better idea to me than taking off. Because he could still be here today. And for those of us who have friends and family members who doubt that Jesus is alive, we could be like, yeah, I totally get that you doubt that he's real. He'll actually be here next week. He's doing Rogers Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And you could just come by. And you could just see him for yourself and make your own decision. That would be a lot easier for me. I don't know about for you. But instead... It's like we take our friends to the show at Rogers to see Jesus, and he calls us into the back in the green room, and then he's like, hey, guys, new plan. I'm actually going to get out of here, 
but it's no big deal. I got a great idea. You're going to get on stage, and it's going to go just great. And you can just imagine what it would feel like in the crowd. It's like people are there to see Adele, and then instead it's just John that steps onto stage singing Adele songs like, Hello from the others. It's just a huge letdown. If you can imagine this moment, that's what it would be like. You're going to see Jesus. Instead, you just see these stinky guys who have been following him around for the last three years. Seems like a really bad plan to me. So it's deeply surprising because it's not the way that I do it. But if we know anything about God, he's not always interested in, he, he always, or he wants, we can want what he wants, but we can miss God because we think that it's going to happen in the way that we would do it. And that's not the way that God often does things. And that's often why we have confusion with God and hurt and, and frustration. If we look back at the story of God, though, we will see just like Jesus did with the disciples, we, we would see that we shouldn't have been surprised. Let me just give a quick re- review of the story of why we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus leaves and says, I'm going to use you. In Genesis, when God, the first part of the Bible, when God says, I want to expand shalom in the world. So he takes this place of darkness, of wild and waste, of chaos, and he creates this place of order and light and beauty, a place that can be inhabited by people. What does he do? when he wants to expand that into the rest of the world, he creates these creatures called humans. And he says, I want to partner with you. I bless you. I say that you are actually my image in the world. And so it's like he's putting his hand out to us. He says, you actually are my plan. Will you take my hand, and together let's expand shalom into the world. But very unfortunately, the first people withdraw their hand from God. And that's when sin and chaos and death and all those things that, are, that have been held back are re-released into the world. But God doesn't give up. That's the good news. He extends his hand to a new group of people, to the people of Israel. And he says, I want to bless you. I want to bless you in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. I want to partner with you in this kingdom work that I'm wanting to do. I want you to bring Jubilee. And so Israel, at certain points, they take God's hand and they partner with him. And then at certain points, they pull their hand away. And then they come back and they pull their hand away. But the good news is God doesn't give up, even though the people continue to back out of their promise. And so in the final chapter that we've just read in the, in the Gospel of Luke, God comes himself to be that partner that he's always been looking for, that human partner, to partner with him to release jubilee and shalom and hope and beauty and goodness into the world. But here's the deeply ironic thing that happens. Instead of Jesus, who takes God's hand, instead of him receiving blessing, he receives curse. Instead of receiving jubilee, Jesus experiences brokenness and shame and captivity. And Jesus never lets go of God's hand, but at the end of his life, God lets go of Jesus. It says he turns his back on him, and then Jesus goes. And it seems like all of these dark forces have won, that he's been pulled into the undercurrent of the darkness of the world. But then, to the surprise of everyone and the disciples, and us included, God reaches his hand back in, and he pulls Jesus up from the grave, back to life. And so Jesus now stands at this moment in this passage with his hands out to us. God stands his hands out to us once again, to the disciples and to each one of us, and their nail-pierced hands, their hands that are scarred, their hands that know suffering and pain, and he reaches his hand out to us and he says once again, I want to partner with you to bring my kingdom into the world. That's the way that I'm going to do it. It's the way that I've always done it, and it's the way that I'm going to do it now. He wants to do it with us. And so this question to the disciples, or this word of you, is a question to each of us. Would you, do you want to partner together with the God of the universe to heal the world? That's the invitation on tap. That's always been his plan. 
to work through people, and it will never not be his plan. It will always be his plan. In fact, I would say in the Bible, there's no plan B. Plan A is to work through us to bring God's kingdom into this world. God is unbelievably committed to humanity. The biblical word that's used here is faithful. That God is faithful to what he said. He's committed to us. And he's not blind to the darkness that exists within us in humanity, whether that's the darkness within me, inside me as a person, the way that that I've acted, or the darkness within us as people, the way that we've dehumanized other people, the way that we hurt ourselves and each other, and the ways that we've destroyed the world. God knows all of that. He knows it even better than us, but he's committed to us. He's not going back on it. He's faithful. And for me, the question is why? Why would God be faithful to that? You know, if I was God, once again, which is a dangerous thing to think about, but if I was God, I would have quit. Like, after the third time that people, like, screwed up, they let go of his hand, I would have been like, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to try giraffes. Giraffes, they stand out. You know, maybe they would be better. Or rocks. Rocks just sit there. The Bible actually says at one point, the rocks will cry out. Maybe let's make the rocks cry out. I would give up on, like, just to be candid, not, no offense to any of you who are human here, I would give up on humanity, and God doesn't. And the question for me, I, I think about is why? Why not give up? I would. I think most of us would. It's because God sees the potential that we have within us to reflect his light and his love into the world, the full potential of what it means to be human. Because to be human is to be able to be a portal, a reflection of love, and of light, and of goodness, and of blessing, to be a reflector of God himself. And so when he looks at you, and he looks at me, and he looks at the disciples, he doesn't just see dull, average, boring people who kind of need a little lift. You know, if you could just finally get to inbox zero, or if you could just get your budget together, or if you just have slightly better communication in your marriage, then everything would work out. What God sees when he looks at us as people is someone who could shine as brilliantly as the sun. He sees someone who could reflect himself into the world. He sees someone he wants to partner with. He sees someone who could be fully alive. Another way of saying this, and something that hit me very deeply this week, is that God actually believes in us. He believes in the disciples. He believes in me. He believes in you. And one of the things I realized this week is he just believes in me way more than I dare believe in myself, actually. I have a much lower opinion of myself than God does. And this passage, when he says, you are my plan and I leave, is saying he believes in you way more than you might let yourself believe in it. Or, or maybe put it this way, it's something that you might know but not believe. It's something that you might know and not believe. Now, what's the difference between these two things? For me, one of the best examples between the difference of knowing something and actually believing it comes from the movie Goodwill Hunting. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. I'm going to spoil it for you, but it's been out for like 20 years, so too bad for you. Um, but uh, it's, it, the main character, his name is Will. He's on the left here, played by Matt Damon. Um, he's a brilliant guy, but he's deeply, deeply flawed. And a lot of the flaws in his life come from... Uh, at least in the movie, they, they say it comes from the abuse that he suffered when he was a kid. He was in the foster care system and was beat by his uh, father, his foster father, mercilessly. And at the end of the movie, there's this unbelievably powerful scene where he starts talking openly with his counselor, who is played uh, by Robin Williams, and his name is Sean. So Will and Sean. And so they're talking about all the abuse that Will has had in his life. And Sean, at one point... He has a a file, a folder of all the things that that Will has done and all the things that have been done to him. And he holds it up and he says, you know, all this stuff, 
all the stuff in here. It's not you. It's not your fault. And Will looks back at him and he says, yeah, like, I know. I get it. And Sean looks at him again and he says, no, I don't think you do. It's not your fault. And Will says, yeah, like, no, no, I get it. It's, it's not my fault. And Sean says, no, look at me, son. You don't get it. It's not your fault. And at that point, Will starts to become a little confused, and he's like, yeah, like, I understand what you're trying to say. It's not my fault. And then Sean steps forward to him, gets a little closer, and he just keeps repeating, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And at that point, Will breaks down. And you can see he's starting to move from being confused to being angry. And he says to him, don't mess with me. Don't mess with me, Sean. Anyone but you, don't mess with me. And Sean takes another step forward and he grabs him by the back of the neck and he holds him and he says, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And Will breaks, absolutely breaks down. He starts crying and weeping and he says, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And it turns out to be this pivotal point in the movie. And also this pivotal point in Will's life where his past had defined him for the entire movie up until this point. And now his past doesn't define him anymore. And he's able to move on and move ahead. Will goes from knowing that it's not his fault, as he said the whole time, to actually believing that it might not be his fault. That he could be someone who's loved, that he's not just someone who's a piece of garbage. He's not just constrained to where he is in life, but he actually might be someone better than that. And I think one of the reasons why this movie has resonated with so many people and why this scene is so powerful is because that it's something that many of us understand and experience. See, if I just say to you, God believes in you, you might say, like, yeah, I know, I got it. God loves me. Sounds good. But in this passage, Jesus is taking a step forward to us. And he's saying, you don't actually understand. Look at me, son. Look at me, daughter. I believe in you. I love you. I wish you could see what I see when I see you. I want you to represent me. And we might say, yeah, like, I know I got it. We're witnesses. Jesus loves me. I've heard it since I was a kid. And Jesus is saying to us in this passage, no, you don't. I don't think you do. I know you know it, but you don't believe it. If you believed me, you would see what my hand reach out to you means. If you would just look at me and see how much I love you, how much I believe in you, then you would want a partner. Because when I look at you, I see someone who is absolutely beautiful. Someone who could reflect the glory of the God of the universe. I see a partner that I want to have in this story of reconciliation that I'm writing in the rest of the world. And some of us, like Will, will just want to say, don't, don't mess with me, God. Don't mess with me, because you don't know who I am, you don't know what I've done, and you don't know the hang-ups that I have. So don't mess with me. Don't pretend that you love me like this. Don't pretend that you value me like this. Don't give me hope. Don't break my heart. Because at the heart of it, that's what it is. Is we're afraid to believe in ourselves because it might hurt us. But in this passage, God is basically coming behind us and grabbing us by the scruff of the neck and pulling us close and saying to us, I see you. And I believe that you can be part of my family and part of my work in the world. Don't settle for anything less than what I've created you to be, which is an image of the invisible God. And don't settle for any dream smaller than my dream of Jubilee, that we could actually see our world healed, justice, reconciliation, and hope 
a place where heaven and earth overlap. That's what God wants for us and what he's saying to us in this passage. And again, I think many of us know this. This is not new information, but do you believe it? Are we willing to let it actually seep down to the level of gut that that is truly how God sees us and who we are, that he wants to partner with us? He wants to partner with you in order to see his kingdom come. What would happen if we allowed these words to become true about us? What would happen if we actually believed? So Jesus says to the disciples and to us, you are my plan. You are my plan. I'm leaving. But Jubilee will continue to flow into the world through you. My people will know that I am the risen king through you. And my kingdom will come in the world through you. And so, if we allow ourselves to dare believe this, what might it actually look like? What might it actually how might we actually participate in this? How do we do it? And this is a great question, and this is where we're going in like the next seven weeks. But this passage is a really great starter for us because it points out three things that we're going to be talking about in much more detail in the next few weeks about how we are to be part of God's kingdom plan. So let's take a look at those three here as we close. The first is this. I want to take a look at this word you again. Now, a little bit of backstory. I took Greek about 10 years ago, and I will be 100% honest with you that I have not retained very much from that time, but I do remember one thing. That is, the difference between second-person singular and second-person plural is a very important difference in Greek. Now, before any of you black out, let me just try to explain to you very quickly what this is and why it's important. So, first-person is like me. I'm the first person, and singular is one. So, first-person singular in English is... I or we, yes. There's a difference between possessive. Sorry, I should have added that in there, but I thought I was already doing enough. So, I or me. First person plural. So, first person, myself included, more than one, is we. Okay, second person, not myself, you. That's the singular. And the second person plural in English. You might, well. So, here's the thing. Modern English doesn't have something here. It doesn't have something here, but most, most languages actually do. So, for example, Chinese, which is the language I know just slightly more than I know Greek, has a word here. So, first person singular, wo. First person plural, woman. Second person singular, ni. Second person plural, ni men. It has a word, and most languages do, and Greek does as well. But in English, we don't have a category for this language. So, my Greek teacher, who was a Texan, would make us translate the second person plural as... Y'all, as some of you said, that that's actually the way that we should translate it, is y'all. And uh, he would say to us with his drawl, he would say, this is why Texan is the heavenly language. (laughs) And it just sent a deep shiver down my spine as I think about going to heaven and meeting Jesus. And he's been like, how y'all doing? I'd be like, I am in the wrong place. Uh, Unless you have sweet tea and barbecue, in which case I'm very much in the right place. Okay, so here's why this is all important, Okay. The word that's translated here that we look at and we see you is not actually you. It's y'all. It's a second person plural. So Jesus is actually not saying you are my plan. He is saying y'all are my plan. I want to work through y'all to bring my jubilee kingdom into this world. And, And so it takes the pressure off of us as individuals. It is not about us going around and making jubilee happen as people. That's not the way that it primarily works. It's the people of God, the church of God, the body of Christ. Us as a community, how do we participate 
as God puts out his hand and says, I want to partner with you. And that opens up a lot of new questions that we'll be talking about in the next few weeks. How do we dream of, how do we together dream a dream of Jubilee? How do we organize ourselves and work together to display the character of God in our city? And how do we, as a people, make a home for the resurrected life of Jesus? These are the questions we'll be looking at. But it's y'all and not you. So, y'all. The second thing, so then Jesus is saying, y'all are witnesses of these things. Now, again, this word witness and words like evangelism are tough words for us. They may have a lot of baggage attached to them for you. Don't worry, we'll be unpacking that baggage and trying to repack it with something helpful in the next few weeks. For, for now, let me just point out three things that this word witness means for us today. The first is that witness means that the church is to have a focus beyond its own walls. We have a purpose and a focus beyond our own walls. God's story would say it this way. As the people of God, we receive the blessing of God in order to be a blessing to those who are not part of the people of God. We are blessed to be a blessing. And that means we have a focus outside of these walls. It doesn't mean that this is not unimportant and we'll connect this space to what goes on out there in the next few weeks. But the point is to say to witness means that there is a focus that we need to have outside of these walls. And I'll just say this um, to our community very specifically. In the past three years, we've been dealing with a lot of different things that have happened in this community and even in this building and in the world. And that's caused us very normally to, to just give an extended focus on what's going on here. And so at this point in our history, we're very focused on what's happening here. And we're just trying to, for a long time, make sure that this... Sunday gathering even happens somewhere in the city. But this is a time for us to actually focus our eyes and our hearts outside, which is going to be a stretch for a lot of us. And we're going to try to walk you through that and pray through it together and maybe think of some new ways of doing it. But it's time. It's time for us to start focusing our eyes and our hearts on what it means to be a witness. The second thing, to be a witness means that we point away from ourselves to someone or something else. To witness to something says, actually, I'm not the main event. I'm not the most important person here. We're not the most important people. This gathering is not the most important thing. What we're doing is we're actually pointing to something bigger, something greater, to something else. We are witnesses to that thing. And as the church, what we are supposed to be is a signpost, a witness to the watching world that there might be a different world than the one that we inhabit. There might be a different king, a God who is faithful, a God who sees us as we truly are, that there might be a kingdom of hope and jubilee and justice and joy that can come through this God and our partnership with him. To use the pre- previous analogy of Adele, it's like saying this. It's, it's, to be a witness is not saying every word that comes out of my mouth is a lyric of Adele. Or when I sing, it sounds exactly like Adele. But rather to say that I should live my life in a way that would make you hope that there is an Adele. And this is the farthest that we can take that analogy. It it may have broken down already, but if you take it any farther, it will completely break down. But that's the idea, that we are actually, we are witnesses to something bigger that's going on throughout all of history in this city. We as a church community are a witness to the rest of the church, with the rest of the churches of what's going on. There's always something bigger. There's always someone greater that we point to. So that's the first two. The final one is that to witness is a call to suffer. So the Greek word for witness is, is the word martures, martures in Greek. You're getting a lot of Greek today. You're welcome, by the way. Um, 
It's translated as in, in English into the word witness, which is what I understand to be a very good translation. The way that it's most often used in Greek is that it is a person who would witness something and then they're, they're talking about it in court, which is maybe the same way that we would use it. But as you can hear from the word martyres, this is also the place that we get the word martyr from. To witness is to martyr, and a martyr is a person who dies for a cause. And so, this is really important for us to understand that to witness is an invitation to suffer. And I don't want to rehash everything that I talked about last week, but I, I showed this diagram. And if our lives, I think, like I said, are, are geared towards the good life, towards a, a middle-class Canadian, upper-middle-class Canadian life, that's the life of comfort, that's the life that we hope for, that's the life that we've had on tap for ourselves ever since we were kids. And so what we do is we fit God into that life. God will help us. That's the, the point of believing in God. He'll help us achieve that dream that we have. But we've just spent 10 weeks looking at Jesus' life. And to me, it doesn't fit into this story at all. It's not a story that's characterized by up and to the right. But rather, it's a God who gives up that dream. Paul uses the word kenosis, which is emptying, that God empties himself. And he serves, and then he suffers, and then he dies. This is the life of Christ. But then he rises to a new reality, to a new world. And so his life is much more characterized by this. That's new, this new kingdom, this new way of being human, this new life. And if that's true, and if that's Jesus' life, then that's also the invitation for us. If Jesus' number one invitation to us is to follow him, it's to follow him into this path. And that's one of the most important things for us as 21st century Vancouverites, is to accept a different story about our lives not the story that we've just been expecting our whole lives and fitting Jesus into that story, but are we willing to shape our lives into the life of Christ, that we might also experience dying, suffering, but rising and becoming new human beings. So Jesus leaves, and his jubilee dream then is carried forward through us as God's family, as witnesses, and finally Jesus says these words, verse 49, and look, I am sending you what my father promised as for you, stay in the city until you're empowered from on high. So Jesus here is, is, is talking about the Holy Spirit. That God has not left us alone, but he's given his spirit to us. And this is the same spirit, again, if we look at the story of the Bible, that was there in the creation of the world. It's the same spirit that empowered the ministry of Jesus. It's the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead. That same spirit can live here. He gives it to us, and he wants to be present here through his spirit. And again, we have so much more to say about this in the coming weeks. But I want to just close by reminding us of one other thing that we might know, but we might not actually believe deep in our hearts. That God's sending of the spirit means that he actually wants to be with us. God longs, he deeply desires to be with us, to make his home with us, to live with us. Again, the story of God makes this so, so clear. At the beginning of the story, the final day of creation in Genesis, God comes and dwells with his people. He wants to be with them and partner with them to heal the world. With Israel, God dwells in the middle, in the tabernacle or in the temple, that his presence is there with his people, that he longs to be with his people. When Jesus comes, his name is Emmanuel, one of his names. God with us. He wants to be with us. And at the end of the story, it moves from garden to garden city, which is why it was such a good name. This is what it says in the second last chapter of the book. Look, God's dwelling place is with humanity and he will live with them. This is the good news. That God will be with us 
and we'll be able to take his hand and we'll be able to take the hands of each other and partner together, as this passage says, for the healing of the world. His desire has always been and will always be that he wants to be with us, to dwell with us. And I don't know about you, but that is something sometimes I know but I don't believe. That God actually wants to be here. He wants to be with us. He wants to make his home here with us. And if that's true, then we just want to start asking the questions. What might it mean for our lives if we look at them as a place that might be a home for the Holy Spirit? What might it mean for us as a church? What might it mean for us as we gather and what might it mean for us as we disperse from this place? Let's pray to close. God, we thank you for this word. It is both challenging and encouraging at the same time. I pray now as we respond that you would take these things that we know and move them into a place, into our gut, into our hearts, into our lives. May they become things that we actually believe and embody. We pray in this time that you would allow us to to have creativity and dreams of what might the answers be to these questions. What might it be that we together as the people of God are your representatives here what might it mean that we witness to you and what might it mean that your, your Holy Spirit dwells with us? So as we worship together, as we pray, as we take communion, as we sing, we ask that you would uh, make your presence known to us, that we would attend to what you're doing here and partner with you. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.